Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. Jesus, though, as he calls his disciples sheep, it's not because they were dumb. He says, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. He wants them to know that they're moving out into a hostile environment. He doesn't want them to expect that everyone's going to honor them and love them and bless them. Oh, thank you for sharing the Lord with me and how wonderful you are. No, it's it's more, get out of my face. You're nobody to judge me. And As we move through the 10th chapter of the book of Matthew, Pastor Sam begins a new message entitled, Sheep in the Midst of Wolves. Starting in verse 16, Jesus prepares his disciples and us for what to expect as we go into the world to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ, while also giving us the comfort and encouragement he knows that we will need. Matthew chapter 10, we're picking up at verse 16, the title of our message, Sheep in the Midst of Wolves. Matthew 10, 16, Sheep in the midst of wolves. I'll never forget the looks on their faces. We just finished a concert and worship set and the pastor who was sharing that night at this rather large evangelistic outreach stepped to the podium. He opened in his Bible and, and he began to speak and, and he said, we are the bride of Christ. A few people in the crowd started to squirm a little. He went on to say, Jesus loves you so much and he laid down his life for you and he wants you to be his bride as well. Well, I was sort of surveying the crowd, being a young Christian myself and, and trying to learn from what others were doing. And I looked around and, and I noticed this crowd, well, a lot of burly biker types, Long Beach kind of guys, you see. And it was in that area that we were actually doing the outreach. Well, what happened is, is as time went on and he continued with the bride of Christ and the bride of Christ and the bride of Christ, I realized that not all texts are equally appropriate for evangelization, for evangelizing. You get that, right? And he would have done much better with that crowd to say, God wants to make you fishers of men or warriors for Christ. But a bunch of burly bikers picturing themselves in a, you know, okay, what, am I going to wear a wedding dress? What's it going to, I just don't, it's not me. It doesn't work. And truly, it wasn't conviction of the Holy Spirit making them squirm or, or the reality of the Word of God, but just the bizarrety of the image that that concept can paint for somebody who's uninitiated or unaware. So here's the deal. Today we get into a passage that has that kind of potential, and you need to know that this passage was not intended to evangelize the lost. Now, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says you are, in fact, lost, separated from him because of your sin. You're dead in trespasses and sin, and so you do need salvation. And we will give an invitation. There will be enough information for you to, to come together and, and say, okay, I, I need Jesus. But, but here's the deal. This passage is all about Jesus instructing those who were already his followers on what they could expect. A, a virtual plethora of different responses to them as they went out sharing the gospel, preaching the good news, healing the sick, ministering in Jesus' name as his representatives. So Jesus tells his disciples, his followers, here in verse 16, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Now, 
I say this could be a problem for some because the idea of being a sheep is actually something unbelievers accuse the church of. Maybe friends or family have told you, you're just the sheep. Talk to a gal in the fellowship. Someone was telling her just the other day, you're just sheep. Well, you know what? It's okay to be seen that way because we're following the good shepherd and he calls us sheep. Now, they may mean it in a derogatory way. But we need to see that term as actually a good thing. It means that we are relying on him for direction and sustenance and protection and everything. It's okay to be a sheep as long as you're Jesus' sheep. It's a problem to be a sheep if you're not Jesus' sheep. And here's why. Sheep are kind of dumb. And, uh, you know, if one walks off a cliff, you know what the others do? They just walk off a cliff behind it. There's no, hey, don't do it. It's not a good idea. They just go one after another after another. And so... Jesus, though, as he calls his disciples sheep, it's not because they were dumb. He says, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. He wants them to know that they're moving out into a hostile environment. He doesn't want them to expect that everyone's going to honor them and love them and bless them. Oh, thank you for sharing the Lord with me and how wonderful you are. No, it's, it's more, get out of my face. You're nobody to judge me. And, and he says, that's the kind of expectation you should have as you go out into the world if you're faithful to share the Lord. Now, you need to know that the wolves out there aren't cowering in fear of the sheep. You, you get the picture, right? Oh, here come the sheep. Here come the sheep. No, wolves aren't afraid of sheep. And they're not supposed to be afraid of sheep. You see, Jesus calls us sheep because sheep are totally non-threatening. And we're not to be threatening and warning and pointing the finger and, and, you know, veins popping as we warn people about their certain doom. No, it's the love of God, the kindness of God that brings people to repentance. So he says, look, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, when I think of wolves and sheep, I think of wolves wide-eyed and mouth-watering, thinking, man, we'll just rip them to shreds. We'll destroy and Dying on them, well, we'll eat them up. But, but here's the thing. Again, we're to be wise, he says, as serpents, harmless as doves. So he calls us sheep, and then he says, I want you even more than sheep like dove-like. Doves are absolutely non-threatening. So anybody that might be afraid of sheep, well, they're not going to be afraid of a dove. One last thing before we move on and actually look at his specific instructions. And he gives them five and then he gives us five principles that will apply to every believer in every age and dispensation. The first five will have some application, but you'll see in some of them they're local and definitely speaking primarily and most likely, you know, just for them. But we'll, we'll take that apart. The other thing, though, is that if you follow the rhetoric of some Christian teachers and preachers, you'd think that they were trying to, you know, you know, raise up some attack sheep or something. It's like, like, and I, I get a picture when I think of that too. It's sort of like, you know, coming to a theater near you, Lambo, you know, and you got the big thing here and the big thing here. And, but that again, that's not us. There may be some attack sheep out there. There may be some dangerous, aggressive, hostile sheep. But we're not supposed to be that. Why? That's not how Jesus is. And we're his representatives. We're Jesus people. First and foremost, more than anything else. Well, five clear admonitions he gives them because he's sending them out as sheep in the midst of wolves. He says, be wise, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. 
You know, you can be innocent and not gullible. You can be giving and generous, but not the kind that anyone could just take advantage of you. And he's calling us to be wise, to be alert, to be awake, to, to pay attention. The second admonition that he gives us there in verses, well, 17 and 18, is he says, beware. So be wise and then beware. Why? And of who? Beware of men, he says, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Now, clearly this part is local and speaking primarily to them. You don't want to picture, though, just the twelve. Luke tells us in this same exact passage that he was speaking to the 72 disciples he had at this point amassed unto himself, gathered unto himself. And so he's sending out 72 to represent him. And he's saying, beware, because men will deliver you up to councils, they'll scourge you in the synagogues, but you will be brought before governors and kings for myself and as a testimony to me. Now, this very thing would, in fact, happen to them. Their Jewish brethren would reject them. They'd be scourged in the synagogues. They would be kicked out of the synagogues. When they moved out beyond the initial ministry phase where they were going strictly in Jerusalem, they moved to Judea, then Samaria, then to the uttermost parts of the world. They, some of them, would stand before kings and, and would stand before governors. They would be imprisoned. They would be flogged. And so he's saying, hey, beware. No, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Now, it's doubtful that most of us are going to be flogged in a synagogue or kicked out. Why? We don't go to synagogue. We're not Jewish. We'll talk more about that concept in a few minutes, too. But And equally unlikely that we'll be brought before governors and kings. Why? We're just, for the most part, we're ordinary people. Well, they were, too. But in their generation and in that time, God was doing something that brought them to the forefront. So it's possible while not many of us will ever have that experience, some of us just might. But, but let's bring it down to something we will have. An experience where it doesn't matter if it's a governor or it's a king. Anyone who is in authority can be a threat to us. Or anyone we look up to or feel insecure around. They can feel a threat to us. And so what he's saying is beware of falling into that trap. And, and then in verses 19 and 20, he gives us some great advice. He says to be at peace. And he says it this way. When they deliver you up, don't worry about how or what you shall speak. It will be given you in that hour what you shall speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Now, one thing almost every person here has in common with every other person here is most of us are insecure about sharing our faith for the simple reason that we think someone's going to ask us a question we won't be able to answer. I know that's common because I felt that in the early days and uh, I overcame it completely, not by becoming the student I did eventually become or because I know the Bible so well. No, I overcame it with three simple words and it happened early on. Those three words are these, I don't know. It works. Try it. Next time someone asks you a question that you don't know the answer to, rather than hemming and hawing and, and trying to figure out something you can say, just say, hey, I don't know. That's an interesting question. And then go back to whatever you're trying to share with them or say, you know what, I'll ask down at the church or better yet, why don't you come down there with me? I'm sure one of the pastors are around or one of the Sunday school teachers or one of the Bible college teachers. Let's get those questions answered. 
But if you're hesitant to share because you think people will ask you questions you can't answer, you need to know that 99% of the time, the questions answered are a question any Christian, if you've been coming here for six months, you could answer them all. Because they're basic, fundamental questions. They're the same questions you had when you were first coming to Christ, when you were first evaluating the claims of Christ. And they're simple. They're not... And if they're beyond it, don't forget the, the words that settle every problem. I don't know. It's a perfect answer to a, a disturbing situation. Now, what we do find happening in the lives of the disciples, Peter, who was a fisherman, and by the way, the religious leaders take note of these guys and they say, man, aren't these guys just fishermen? But they also took note that they had been with Jesus. And when you get to Acts chapter 2 and Peter's filled with the Spirit and he's preaching on the day of Pentecost, he weaves from various Old Testament passages and, and he pulls from here and he pulls from here and he weaves this incredibly powerful and wonderful sermon. It had everything needed to bring conviction and wisdom and understanding so that those people well, they could make an educated decision for or against Christ. And I don't think it's just that Peter was such a good speaker. I think we're seeing the fulfillment there of what Jesus promised here. It won't be you. It will be the spirit of my father who will be speaking to and speaking through you. I don't know if you've had this experience. I hope you have. And if not, that you do soon. You're just sharing with someone and they're asking you questions and it's, it's all of a sudden, it's almost like you get in what sports people call a zone. For a zone for a basketball player, the, the hoop's like this big. You just can't miss. No matter what you do, it goes in. For, for, you know, it's other sports, you know, it's, it's the same thing. Baseball looks this big and, and the bat this big and there's just no way it can get past you. Well, that can happen as you share. And what happens is it's a supernatural reality. It's not like you're in a trance or something. It's still you. You're still conscious. You're still speaking and thinking. But God really does begin to answer the questions and, and you just all of a sudden, oh, I remember, it's right here in this passage. Or no, I, I, I can answer that for you. And if you haven't had the experience, pray that God will give it to you. That he'll give you opportunity to get out there, to share with people. And as they ask questions, just say, Lord, I'm going to rely on you. And if you don't tell me the answer, I'm going to tell them, I don't know. And then, hey, the opportunity is there. So he says, be wise, beware. Be at peace. And then in verses 21 and 22, he says to be prepared in essence. He says, you will be hated. Oh, excuse me, verse 21. Now brother will deliver up brother to death and a father is child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Now, what he's telling them was oh so important. And this does have an immediate and personal application for us. He says, be prepared. Your own family may not like what you have to say. Remember, these disciples were Jews. They were from the 12 tribes of Israel. And so when they came preaching Jesus, they're declaring Jesus is the Messiah. Well, the religious establishment of the day had already decided he wasn't the Messiah. They were ignoring the obvious evidence that would have proved he was. We'll see some of that in our next study, in fact. 
But they had decided if anyone said that he was, they were to be put out of the synagogue. This is going to put a big strain on families. They were an agricultural community, and when they weren't in agriculture, whatever business they had, it was father and son and grandfather and son and grandson. And so all of a sudden, when you come home and you say, hey, I'm a Christian, they weren't going to be all that excited to hear it. Some of you have had a similar experience if, like me, you came from Catholic background. Now, I'm not in any way anti-Catholic, but I had three years long ago where I, I, I went to the Catholic Church, ages 13, 14, and 15. It was in Latin in that time, so I was just kind of like this hormonal kid just sitting there wondering, what in the world is going on here? But, but here was my, my real problem. Those relatives that grew up staunch Catholics, and some of you have experienced this, when they find out you're no longer attending the Catholic Church, that you're going to a Protestant church, they, they believe you've actually lost your salvation, that you've gone, you're, you're done, you know, now you're going to go to hell. Because God knows only Catholics are going to hell, I mean to heaven. <laughs> Excuse me, that's very Freudian. That's not supposed to happen. But, but here's the deal, to clear up any possible confusion that could come from that last statement. I don't believe Catholics get to heaven because they're Catholic or Protestants because they're Protestant. I don't think Baptists and Pentecostals have special sections in heaven to keep them from arguing about the gifts. I think anybody who gets to heaven gets there through the person and the finished work, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so it isn't about denominations. In fact, the very fact that we're of Paul or we're of Apollos or we're of Cephas, that was their generations. I'm Baptist. I'm this. I'm that. He says that's just carnality. That's immaturity. We did it when we went to high school. I went to PV. I went to Chico. Well, Durham's better. No, Paradise is better. It's immaturity. You expect it in high schoolers, but not in representatives of Jesus. And so what he's saying is, no, your own family may reject you. And for sure, staunch Catholics, until they visit, until they see that what you're experiencing is a good thing, you're studying the Bible, you're walking with the Lord, you're growing in the Lord, that's got to be good, you see. And the real issue isn't what church, but is that church or those people, those leaders, are they pointing people to Jesus? Is salvation in Jesus and in him alone being preached and, and is the word being taught. So what happens for them is he says, be careful, your own families, they're going to reject you. And, and in their context, it, it wasn't just they're going to not put up with you. First put out of the house, disowned, and then disassociated, and then ultimately brought before tribunals. He says, well, Fathers will be against their children and children will rise up against parents there in verse 21 and cause them to be put to death. And, and so he says, it could get really bad. And, and I want you to know, you need to be wise, you need to beware, you need to be at peace, but you need to be prepared. There will be trial, there will be tribulation, there will be rejection, there will be persecution. And in their case, even death simply for standing up for the cause of Christ, hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. That's important, especially in that immediate context. He's not saying if they endured, they wouldn't die. He's just saying endure and you'll be saved, you see, because no one can kill the soul. No one can kill the person inside. No one can kill that part of us that is fitted for eternity. And so Jesus is telling them, and there may be some here who will find themselves in a similar situation where your parents, because of their religious traditions, 
because of years and decades and, and centuries of belief in Buddha or in Krishna or in someone else. You coming to say, no, look, Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. People aren't stupid. They know that means if that's true, then their relatives who were trusting in Buddha, well, they've perished. You know, a lot of people have very difficult time coming to the Lord because just coming acknowledges that, well, then my dad, he's lost and my grandpa's lost. Well, that's going to be the case whether they come to the Lord or not. When deceivers deceive and people believe a lie and they follow a liar, well, that's a tragedy. But we can't undo the past. What we got to deal with is the present. And so in any case, he says, be prepared. And, and then he says in the latter part of that, in, he who endures to the end will be saved. And then he says, in essence, be persistent. When they persecute you, verse 23, in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will have not gone through all the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. That phrase has been misunderstood and misinterpreted in so many ways. It's possible all Jesus is saying, look at you're not going to finish your route before I follow closely behind you. Some have seen this really referring to the transfiguration where he comes in glory and in power. And we'll check that out in just a few weeks together. Some have seen this really looking beyond the immediate to the ministry they would have and ultimately Jesus coming and bringing people to him. The kingdom established in their midst as they shared the gospel. Others see it as Jesus coming in judgment because of so many who rejected him. The temple would be destroyed. The people would be scattered in 70 AD. And listen, I got to be honest. When it comes to this one, I don't know. I honestly don't know which of those would be best or right. Sometimes that's going to happen. It's possible that there's a part of all of them or each of them has some logic and sanity to it. But for the most part, the part we can be sure about, the part we can get, is that in the midst of rejection and tribulation and persecution and hatred, he says, when they persecute you in one city, flee to another. There's good advice. He's just saying, hey, if they're throwing you out, keep moving. Just keep preaching, keep teaching, keep healing, keep ministering. For assuredly, I say, you won't have gone through all these cities until the Son or before the Son of Man comes. Now, he gives us some principles that definitely apply to each and every one of us. If, in fact, you were a follower of Jesus, you have become his disciple. That just means a student of, an imitator of, one who is learning from and aspiring to be like another. And so he gives us a couple of principles we want to grab hold of today. Verse 24, he says, A disciple is not above his teacher. Well, that makes sense. One's teaching, one's learning. It's clear that the leader, the teacher, should be above the disciple. And then he says, A servant isn't above his master. Now, those things should seem obvious to us, but the reason he's saying them is he, he wants to make a point of application. He says, It's enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher, and a servant like his master. That's his goal. And by the way, that's what the Father's doing in us. As we continue to walk with Jesus and grow in Jesus, we will become more like Jesus. And so he says, it's enough that a student and a, and a teacher or a servant be like his teacher or master. But if they've called the master of the house, verse 25, the latter part, Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them. Now, what he's getting at here 
is that we shouldn't expect better treatment than he received. I mean, if he's the master and we're his servants, why should we expect that they would treat us and honor us and respect us and admire us when they rejected and hated and crucified him? No, we're representing the one that brings a sword, that, that causes division, that, that causes people to have to decide. And they don't always like the decision they're forced into making. So he's just saying, look, if they hated me, they'll hate you. If they love me, they'll love you. Some of Jesus' warnings in these passages can be a little daunting. And for some who set out with good intentions, but end up watering down the message of Christ to simply make it easier for people to hear, the question must be asked, who are we trying to please, man or God? I love what Paul says in Galatians 1.10, for do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.